And let's see, I want to make sure I'm recording. Okay. So, uh, as far as these questions go, you may uh, remember that we uh, submitted some questions to be, uh, to be looked at, to be addressed, and then uh, I'm going to deal with these or, or, or approach these just in the order that I receive them so that we can, um, that I'm not giving preference to one question over another. It was just sort of first come, first serve. And I'm also going to recommend some resources to take you a little further in, in some of these questions because most of them are larger than we can address in a short time. And a short time is all we have. Uh, I'm also not going to mention who asked the question because uh, none of them are essential to a particular person. And it's really better if it's left uh, anonymous so that you're focusing on the question and not the person who asked the question. And it also frees the person who asked the question to just listen rather than feel like uh, everyone is evaluating them. <laughs> so, well, let's just dive right in and um, let's take the first question here. Boy, these are great. So here's the first one. We are commanded to support Israel. And we do so as God uses them to reveal himself. Uh, and we do as God uses them to reveal himself. So here's the question. Does that mean that we are to support and approve? And there are four options. The government of Israel that sometimes does horrible things, or the people of Israel who don't know the Messiah, or the promise of the land to God's people, or the prophecy of the future. So what exactly are we supporting when we support Israel? Because God has used and disciplined severely the nation of Israel. And then the person that asked this said, I, I'm thinking that we, the American church, have a very romanticized view of present-day Israel. Isn't that an insightful question? And honestly, that is a question that I have asked through the years because uh, it isn't very clear to us, at least on the surface, how are we to support God's people? And it's so the question is so succinctly stated, I wish the answer could be as succinct as well. But we do, as American Christians, tend to romanticize—that's uh, a great word—Israel, um, particularly those of us who have been to Israel— when you go to Israel and you experience the context in which the Bible happened, it is life-changing. It's almost like a trip to Disney World when you've been reading about Mickey Mouse all your life. That's a bad comparison, but in the sense that it is, it is magical. It, there is a lot of woo-woo feeling about being there, and you have to sort of push all the emotion aside and just realize, I'm simply in the historical context where the Bible happened. There's nothing magical about this dirt. It's just the dirt that God sovereignly chose to as the stage for his divine drama. Um, well, because it is so personally life-changing, we often want to support Israel in a sense to in a sense to preserve our own love and our own experience for being there. And also because Israel is sort of the only tangible bit of the Bible that we have. We tend to imagine it uh, a lot different than it really is. So let's look at a couple of places in Scripture 
Let's turn to Genesis chapter 12 and Romans chapter 11. Genesis 12, Romans 11. So have both of those accessible, if you would, and let's look and see what we can do to address this, this issue. It's a great question, but imagine for a second trying to answer that question before 1948, because it really ought to be the same answer. What is our status toward Israel before there was an Israel, before there was a state of Israel? There was no nation. There was no geopolitical entity that we call Israel. It was just a scattered Jewish people, and it was really hard to see much of a fulfillment of God's promise to the people, to to the Jews. Currently, uh, according to Scripture, God isn't dealing with Israel as a nation as he has in the past. He will be doing that again in the future, but right now he, he is focused on using the church as the primary means of the proclamation of the good news of Jesus Christ, of the Messiah. But, uh, In fact, ever since the exile, ever since Israel was taken out of the land, when God's kingdom was put on hold, or there was a big pause in God's kingdom plan, um, there has been what the Bible calls the time of the Gentiles, uh, the time when Israel has been dominated by Gentiles. I was reading an article just this morning over my yogurt about modern Israel, and you know they're currently talking about annexing Uh, certain aspects or certain parts of what's called the West Bank, that part of Israel that that the Palestinians claim that Israel is occupying as opposed to it being their land. So you're familiar with the issues. But it's even in the news today, and I was fascinated by one statement in, in which it said that Israel would not consider annexation of these territories without uh without having the United States, getting the United States input. And I thought, times of the Gentiles. Israel is still very much, uh, it's not politically correct to say dominated by Gentiles, but very much influenced by the Gentile nations, not the least of which is the United States. We helped provide for a lot of their military, uh, at least in the, in the 80s and 90s and early 2000s. So, um, But anyway, just even biblically, Israel is still under the time of the Gentiles, and it's not until uh, the kingdom of God, when the Messiah is ruling on earth, that God begins to deal with Israel uh, as a nation once again, and particularly, maybe more accurately, to say during the tribulation, during the the last seven of Daniel's 77s. So anyway, Genesis chapter 12 is what we're looking at. And, of course, the answer is yes, we do support uh, the promise of the land to Israel, the promise of their future. That's an obvious yes. But why do we do it? Well, look at Genesis chapter 12, what God said to Abraham. God gave a promise to Abraham here in Genesis 12 that he has never taken back. Look at verse 1. The Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So why should we support Israel? 
Genesis 12 says, I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. That's a great reason. And all of that, that promise was a promise made to Abraham before the law. And it was a promise that has never been taken back. But blessing the Jewish people doesn't necessarily mean we give them a carte blanche. Anything goes. Uh, especially the nation of Israel now, now that they are a geopolitical entity, they make decisions. And sometimes, as the question stated, they don't make great decisions. And God has always held Israel to account. If you look throughout the Old Testament, God never gave Israel carte blanche. They, God held them to a standard. And the standard was the great commandment, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. This is, this is all the law and the prophets hang on this, and you find that God judges his people throughout history based on whether or not they follow that great commandment. And so, um, you know, we are, to, we are to support Israel to the degree that we can. And if we can, then we should, absolutely, because Genesis 12 says that God blesses those who do. And I think uh, part of the United States' blessing, in spite of our incredible sin that's just getting worse and worse, this is sort of subjective, and now maybe the Scripture definitely supports this view, but I, I can't point to a verse that says it. But I think one of the reasons that God has had His blessing on the United States these some 200-plus years is because of our support of the Jews, uh, especially in the 20th century, and because of our uh, incredible sending of missionaries throughout the world. But uh, you know what? That could be taken back in a New York minute, if God is pleased to do that. So, uh, let's also look at Romans 11, because that gives another balanced perspective on uh, supporting Israel. Romans 11, look down at the, toward the end of Romans 11, starting in verse 25. Romans eleven twenty-five says, Paul writes, I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed in this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and so all Israel will be saved. Just as it is written, the Deliverer will come from Zion, he will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. From the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers, meaning the patriarchs, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Now notice this next part. For just as you once were disobedient to God, but now have been shown mercy because of their disobedience, so these also now have been disobedient, that because of the mercy shown to you, they also may now be shown mercy. For God has shut up all in disobedience, so that he may show mercy to all. Some great verses here and pretty pretty dense theology, but basically the reason that I wanted us to read this is because here at the end of this section of Romans, Romans 9 through 11 talks about God's promises to Israel, and it comes in the flow of the argument of the book of Romans. The first eight chapters talk about how we come to Christ, and then chapter 6 through 8 about how we walk with Christ, and then chapter 8 ends with the great security that we have in Christ. And then Romans 9 through 11 comes in, 
as a support to the fact that we are secure in Christ. Because if God is not going to give up on his promises to Israel, then we can have confidence that he's not going to give up on us Gentiles either. In fact, we better hope God doesn't give up on Israel, because if he does, we Gentiles don't have a chance. But Paul's point in Romans 9 through 11, and particularly in the verses here we just read, show that the calling of God is irrevocable. The promise is made to Abraham, he has not withdrawn, and uh, we should be glad because that, uh, that affirms that the promise is for us as well. So, um, I didn't mention it, but if there are any follow-up questions, we're going to try to save a little time here at the end. So, um, get your blue hand raised, and I'll try to address it in order. If there's any clarification that you want to, to ask, uh, I might ask, though, that if you just want to make a comment that you don't raise the blue hand, but if there's a point of clarification, um, feel free to do so. All right, let's move on to the next question. And uh, boy, this is another fantastic question. Why is it more reasonable to believe in God in the way that he's described in the Bible than not to believe in God or or to believe in a different God? Why is it more reasonable to believe in God in the way he's described in the Bible than not to believe in God at all or in a different God? There's really a few different questions tucked into this one question or several different issues. But um, when it says that we, when we believe in God, particularly the God who is revealed in the Bible, now we're talking about a very specific God, not just God in general, sort of like the United States has this uh, God bless America in the sense of uh, we can fill God is just this empty template that you can stick in anything you want into God. But when you say the, the J word, when you start talking about Jesus, now all of a sudden paths divide. So it's easy to say God bless America as long as we don't talk about who God is. But once we start defining who God is, particularly he is revealed in Jesus Christ, now all of a sudden, whoa, we're talking a different God. But this question asks, why is it more reasonable to believe in the God who is revealed in the Bible? In other words, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, as opposed to to not believe in God or maybe some other God. So, great, great question. And it's really a question that's more than atheism versus theism, like I said, or atheism versus just belief in any God, but specifically it's about uh, Jesus Christ as well. So if you're still in Romans, turn back to Romans chapter 1 and have that ready. I think I may have shared this story with you before in class, but I'll share it again because it's relevant here. When I was in seminary, I had a friend, I met a friend um, who was from the Ukraine. His name was Igor. And Igor was a medical doctor in, the, uh, in Ukraine back when it was part of the Soviet Union. And he, um, he was raised in communist uh, USSR, of course, and atheist USSR. And he was indoctrinated with the communist and the atheist mindset. And, but he was a, a medical doctor and had uh, access, of course, to the amazing intricacies of the human body. And as he studied the human body as a medical doctor, he realized this screams order and design. 
And he struggled with this because he's been taught from childhood that this wasn't a, a design. This was a product of evolution. Well, uh, he's, as he's struggling with this, he's driving along through the countryside one day with a friend of his. And off in the distance in this field, he sees a snowman. And he stops the car and he looks at the snowman and he, and he asks his friend, how did that get there? And his friend said the obvious, somebody built it. Now, and that, that, that snowman powerfully affected Igor because he just put two and two together. There's no way. I mean, conceivably, could you say that the right elements came together, the right wind came together to put a hat on this snowman, to build the snowman, to roll it in balls, to put eyes on it? I mean, conceivably, could all of that have happened just by coincidence? Maybe in billions and billions of years, maybe. But when you just put logic to it, somebody built it. it. That didn't just happen. A logical person is going to come to that conclusion. So Igor put two and two together and he said, uh, I've got to find out the truth. And so he goes to a library to try to find a Bible. But, I mean, it's Russia. It's, it's communist Russia. There's no Bibles. And so, because he couldn't find a Bible, he found those who wrote against the Bible, and in writing against the Bible, they quoted the Bible, and in quoting the Bible, he was more convinced by the quotations of the Scripture than he was about those who wrote against them, and Igor placed his faith in Jesus Christ, and then comes to Dallas Seminary later and uh, goes back to start a seminary in Ukraine. But that story basically illustrates what Paul teaches in Romans chapter 1. Uh, starting verse 18. So look at this uh, familiar but relevant text. Paul writes, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them. Uh, You could also translate it among them. The Greek could go either way, and both fit within the context. Uh, It's evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man, of birds, four-footed animals, crawling creatures. So, the question asks, why is it reasonable to believe in God? Why the biblical God versus any other? And I guess the short answer from this text is because reason can't, can't, adequately, can't adequately explain the world that we live in any other way. If you're going to be a rational being, you look at the world around us and you cannot say it just happened by chance. Psalm 19 says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of His hands. And this psalm goes on to talk about every language, every nation sees the skies, sees the glory of God. And the natural revelation proclaims a creator. And then that psalm also goes on to talk about the special revelation of the Bible, 
and how the Bible gives a standard. Um, by the way, uh, reason alone also can't explain any other any other uh, reason for the evil that's within us, other than the God of the Bible. Rome, the very next chapter, Romans 2, we won't read it, but it emphasizes that we have a conscience, and our conscience condemns us. No matter how low your standard is, you're going to violate your own standard. Therefore, you are justly condemned. There was a great uh, scholar, really he was a mathematician, I believe, uh, Blaise Pascal. He wrote in a, in a collection of thoughts, a, uh, a book called, we call it sometimes Penzance, or I think in French it's pronounced Pensee. It just means thoughts. And he was putting together a, uh, a collection of thoughts that would be used for a work on apologetics. But uh, Pascal died before he could put it together. But his thoughts are still collected in what is one of the classic works of Western literature called his Penzance or, or Pensee. And in it, if you've never read that book, it's, it's great. It's, just, it's almost like reading Proverbs. It's just this brilliant man's simple ways of giving apologetics to, to the truth of God and the existence of God and Christianity. But in it, uh, he, he explains what we've come to call Pascal's Wager. And Pascal's Wager basically looks at the logical outcomes of a belief in atheism or a belief in Christianity with the assumption that we can't know either one for sure. So which way do we go when you can't know for sure? I mean, we can't die and come back to life and know for sure. We have to make our decision on this side of death. So what do you do? And he basically laid out an argument that said this. If you choose atheism, uh, you have one of two choices, so you might as well choose Christianity. But if you choose atheism, here's what's going to happen. You might get a fulfilled life, and you definitely will not get eternal joy. So with atheism, maybe a fulfilled life, no way will you have eternal joy. Christianity, on the other hand, you will get a fulfilled life, and you might get eternal joy. Now again, remember, this is from the perspective of we don't know for sure. But what Pascal is saying is, look, if you've got to choose between maybe and nothing, choose the maybe. Pascal's wager is saying if, you, if you're just going to use reason alone, reason demands that you become a Christian because it's the only chance you have at, uh, at, at a happy afterlife. Atheism also uh, is basically worshiping self or puts self on the throne. I remember after 9-11 seeing a documentary. I can't believe that's almost been 20 years ago. The documentary was called Faith and Doubt at Ground Zero. Faith and Doubt at Ground Zero. It was a documentary that looked at uh, how faith, how people's faith was affected after 9-11 and looking at the incredible evil that God allowed in the world. And it didn't just interview Christians. It interviewed people who had all different, all different backgrounds. And you could almost see the worldviews as you were listening in fact, as I was watching this, I thought, that man is a deist. That man is an atheist. That man is a Christian. You could just see their worldview coming out in what, they're, what they were saying. And one, it was the atheist, though, that made the greatest statement I, I took away from that, that documentary. And basically, he was saying, 
9-11 didn't damage my view of God. It damaged my own faith, that is, my own atheism. And I don't remember exactly how he, how he worded it, but he basically said, atheism looks to humanity as its hope. And 9-11 shows me that I have no hope in humanity. That was profound. And he was exactly right, that there is no hope with atheism because it focuses on people. And uh, 9-11 is just one of many examples that, uh, that show that we can't put our hope in people. The book of Ecclesiastes also looks at this perspective, doesn't it? That uh, Solomon tried everything under the sun to try to find meaning in life, and he basically came right back around to what his daddy David taught him, that uh, life without God is not life. It's not a life worth living. Um, You've probably heard of the, uh, the author, Oscar Wilde. He was a, uh, a hedonist, if there ever was one. Didn't believe in Christ. Uh, had I won't get into the details of his sordid immorality, but believe me, it was sordid. And he lived, he lived a life of wanton pleasure. And at the end of his life, he was on his deathbed, and he told a friend of his, he said, get me a priest. And his friend was like, you got to be kidding. Why in the world would you want a priest? And Oscar Wilde basically said, I have no hope other than in Christ. Can you believe that? Oscar Wilde. So, God, God versus no God, I think it's, it's relatively easy uh, for a rational person to come to the conclusion that uh, if you want hope, there's no other hope but uh, to believe that there is a God. But what about other gods? Only Christianity solves the problem of, um, of our sin, because the issue truly is God's holiness. Uh, if God is holy, if the creation does indeed show that, uh, that God has invisible attributes and divine power, then we're talking about a God who's absolutely perfect, and His standard therefore, would be perfection, which all of us fall short of. I actually did a uh, message, I believe, in Marathon not too long ago uh, that uh, focused on some of these issues, and I'm going to share that link in the chat here in a minute, but also we're going to email some, uh, some resources, some links to resources for you to go a little further on this issue. You probably read in the news this week that uh, we bid farewell to one of God's great servants of apologetics this week. Ravi Zacharias went to be with the Lord this week. One of the most effective and gracious apologists of our day, probably of any day. And I love uh, Ravi's words. He said something that I thought has been so insightful. Listen to, to this quote. He said, God has put enough into this world to make faith in him a most reasonable thing. But he has left enough out to make it impossible to live by sheer reason alone. Again, God has put enough into this world to make faith in him a most reasonable thing. But he has left enough out to make it impossible to live by sheer reason alone. It's reasonable to believe in God, but reason alone won't take you the whole way. You have to have faith. You have to have faith. 
So here are, uh, if you've got access to the chat and are enough, and you are tech savvy enough to, um, to access it, I put all the links in there just now. If you can't get to it, don't worry. We're going to email those to you as well. So again, if you've got a clarification question, just put your uh, blue hand up and we'll try to look, look at it toward the end. Okay, next question. On what grounds do we justify the truth of God's Word? In other words, how would I explain to a friend who isn't a Christian and doesn't believe the Bible that the Bible is the infallible Word of God? You know, I can't think of one one question that would be more relevant today than this one, because it really all stems from this, doesn't it? The Bible is our source in a day that, that uh, balks at absolute truth. The Bible is our source of absolute truth. We, uh, we're really products of the Enlightenment these days. Remember back in the 18th century, uh, even Thomas Jefferson and some of those um, uh, who helped found our country were greatly affected by what was called the Enlightenment. And it, it was basically a, an, an effort by the rationalists of the day to elevate reason above Scripture, that Scripture became subject to reason rather than our reason being subject to Scripture. And so when we ask this question about the Word of God, how do you explain to a friend who isn't a Christian and doesn't believe the Bible that the Bible's the Word of God? You can't start quoting Scripture to do that because they don't believe Scripture. You, you can't prove something with something. You have to prove it outside of that or at least open the door that way. But one of the great ways to do that is just to talk about the whole idea of of the limits of reason. Um, rationalism has really left its skid marks on our culture, on our society, even our seminaries and our pulpits are have been deeply affected by the rationalism. That is, that we look at the Bible, sort of like Thomas Jefferson did when he read the Gospels with a pair of scissors, literally, and he cut out all the miracles of Christ because he, uh, he was focusing on the words, not so much the works of Christ. But it's important also for us to realize that even though uh, our reason has limitations, it is not necessarily in opposition to faith. Faith and reason are not necessarily in opposition. It's just that faith, our, a, a person of faith admits to the fact that our reason only takes us so far. Reason only takes us so far. Faith recognizes that God's, uh, that God is ultimately unfathomable, all of God. The creation affirms the wisdom of God, and we can look at the things that He has made, and we it defies explanation. This is the exact argument that God used for Job in the book of Job, when when Job was asking God about why are you allowing suffering and why are you allowing evil in my life. Basically, God just began to point to creation and says, do you understand what you see? And Job was like, there's no way I can understand all that you've done. And the Lord was saying, if you can't understand what you see, I can't begin to explain to you what you cannot see. But what you can see gives great faith to, helps you have faith that what you can't see is also true. Jesus said it basically in a different way. When he said, if I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? 
He, he said this to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. The thought is that you use what you can see as a, um, as a springboard to, to introduce you to those complex realities that you can understand. Let me read a quote to you from a business book. It's actually a secular book that I read last year. It's called Fast Forward, Make Your Company Fit for the Future. Listen to this quote. It says, Even the most brilliant scientist can master only a tiny fraction of the knowledge that exists. While the human race is becoming collectively more knowledgeable every year, each of us as individuals is becoming relatively more ignorant. Thus, the second paradox of progress is this. The more we know, the less I understand. In other words, the more we know collectively, the less I understand personally. Every morning when we wake up, we are, in relative terms, a little bit more stupid than the day before. (laughs) I like that. The point is that even the natural revelation proves the limitations of our reason. We can't understand all there is to understand. God's Word has told us this all along. And it all comes back to who gets the final authority. Is it my reason? Which, if you think about it, has its limitations. And it's proven its limitations by the fact that we change our mind. If our reason had no limitations, we'd never need to change our mind. We'd have it all down to begin with. But we change our mind every day. We can't decide what we want for lunch until it's in our mouth. And even then, we wish we'd chosen something else. But um, even natural revelation points to the limitations of reason. So, anyway, all that to get back to the question, what do you say to one who doesn't believe the Bible? Well, let's look very quickly at four external reasons and four internal reasons. And I say very quickly because... I think about five years ago, I did a message in our marathon class that's called, Is the Bible Really the Word of God? And I'll drop that, uh, that link in the chat here for you as well, if you want to go back and listen to that again. Five years has been a long time. Uh, I don't expect that you remember that message. I don't even remember it until uh, I looked back up at it. But just a few a few points that give us some encouragement that the Bible is the Word of God. There's four external reasons we can believe it, and then four internal reasons that the Bible itself affirms. First of all, archaeology. If you look at archaeology, it matches with the Scripture. Second, ancient literature. If you compare the ancient literature of, uh, of other works of antiquity, you would... Uh, you would be able to compare it with the, the New Testament, for example, and see that there is great copying accuracy. For example, we have ma- manuscripts that we base world history on uh, by, by uh, authors like Tacitus and Thucydides and Herodotus. We have less than 100 from each of these people, and we base world history on them. Uh, the New Testament, for example, by contrast, has uh, more than 5,000, almost 6,000 Greek manuscripts so the the ancient history. Also, I don't know if you've read uh, Keith Small's book, Holy Books Have a History. It's pretty heady, but it is very good to compare the New Testament with the the uh, uh, Quran, uh, the Quran manuscripts versus the New Testament manuscripts, and talking about 
how we can know just from a manuscript perspective that one is uh, far more uh, according to its testimony that it's divine, particularly the New Testament, versus the Quran. So if you'd like, uh, I'd like to be well-rounded and well-educated on this particular issue, this is a great book for that. The third reason is the perseverance of Scripture. Uh, people all throughout history have tried to destroy it. The Bible lives on and people die. The fourth is the impact of Scripture. Uh, it changes lives like, uh, like no other book has ever done. Um, so that's external. Internal is uh, obviously a lot easier to show that the Bible is the Word of God, but it's sort of a, an argument from itself. The Bible has a unique message, like any other, any other message. It's a message of grace. All other world religions say that you get to God or their version of God by living a good life. On the other hand, the Bible says you can't live a good life to commend yourself to a holy God. It's, it's by grace. Um, second reason is the, the odds of unity of all the Scripture among all the diversity of Scripture. We've got uh, that, that argument of you've got 40 different authors, uh, 1,500 years it was written, three different languages, three different continents, but one single message. What are the odds that all that diversity would have that much unity? But to me, the the uh, the uh, the ace card for for the Bible is fulfilled prophecy. You can't make this stuff up. When the when the Bible predicts events that happen centuries before they happen and gets it down to the gnat's whisker, you can't say that this uh, that this is just coincidence. It's absolutely impossible. In fact, Jesus told his disciples in John fourteen twenty nine. He said. I have told you before it comes to pass that when it comes to pass, you may believe. So fulfilled prophecy is one of the greatest reasons that we know the Bible is the Word of God. And then, of course, the Bible itself claims to be the Word of God. So this is a, you know, an eight-minute version of a 45-minute message that uh, I shared with the class some years ago. But really, if you're trying to share with somebody who doesn't believe the Bible— Probably a great question to begin with is just to ask them, say, let me ask you this. If, if I answered all of your questions to your satisfaction, would you believe that the Bible's the Word of God? Probably they're going to say no. And if they say yes, then that's great. Then you've got a real conversation. But if they say no, then the real problem is that, that people are trying to demand evidence for a truth that they never intend to accept. It's what uh, Paul wrote there in Romans 1, where he says that uh, the problem is not a lack of truth. The problem is a suppression of truth. The truth's available if you truly want to look for it. But uh, if you're just looking for a reason to disbelieve it, you're going to find it. You're going to find it. All right, next question. And this is another great question here. Um, what should I say to a friend who calls himself a little Christian, meaning he goes to church every now and then, but he has a very distant, non-personal relationship or understanding with God? Little Christian. I, I have to admit that's a first. I've never heard that phrase before, but uh, it's a mindset we see all around us. I guess, first of all, you could ask this individual, what is he trusting in to get him to heaven? I mean, define Christian. Take the little out and just say, what are you trusting in to get to heaven? 
And if there's any other answer than grace, then obviously you deal with him as a non-believer and you focus on the gospel. But if he is a Christian, if he truly says, you know what, I'm trusting in Jesus Christ, then you might ask him what his view of the Bible is. Because if this individual believes the Bible, then you can say, oh, yeah, well, that's how you know that the, that the truth of God, the truth of the gospel is there. But the Bible talks more than simply how to get you saved. The Bible also talks about the daily walk with Jesus Christ. Let me read to you just for the sake of time uh, from Mark chapter 12, starting in verse 29. Jesus answered, and he said, The foremost is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one Lord. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Notice Jesus said, All your heart, all your soul. There's no, there's no junior varsity Christian held in, up in the scripture. There's no little Christian. Uh, Jesus says you love him with all your heart. You don't love him with part of it. Think about the, the example of Lot in Sodom. Uh, when Peter talks about Lot in Sodom, he, he says that uh, Lot was a, was a righteous man who was tormented in his righteous soul. So if this little Christian is indeed a Christian, then he is going to be uh, a person who is, is really challenged and tormented. The Bible doesn't give the option of being a little Christian. There's no such thing. There's only obedient Christians and disobedient Christians. Paul said, run to win. You don't, you don't run to come in third place. You run to win. It's not a competition. It's a passion to live faithfully for Jesus Christ. All right, well, we got a lot more questions. We'll put those off till next week. And let me look and see. There is no blue hand raised, which is wonderful, which means there's absolute clarity. <laughs> All right, well, I'll pass it back over to you, Dave. And uh, thank you all for your excellent questions.